Hello. The Walk Awards for Effectiveness are back for 2024 and they have evolved. We're now celebrating strategic brilliance and effective impact across 12 categories and five new regions. It's our biggest award show yet. The great news is you just need to enter once for the chance to win in your region and be in line for the Global Grand Prix announced during Cannes Lions Week. And what hasn't changed is that all our entries will be rigorously judged and consistently benchmarked against the creative effectiveness ladder. So if you win a Global Walk Grand Prix, you can truly claim your campaign is one of the most effective in the world. I'm John Bazell, Walk's Awards Lead, and I'm here to encourage you to head straight to walk.com, download your entry pack, and send us your work by the early bird deadline on 12th of December to get the lowest fee. After that, fees double until the final deadline on the 6th of February. The Walk Awards 2024, strategic brilliance, effective impact. It's the award show you've been waiting for. Hello and welcome to the Walk Podcast. My name's David Tupman and today we are looking ahead to 2024. It is that time of year when we all start thinking about the year to come and to help the marketing industry with that walk recently launched the marketers toolkit 2024 uh looking at five big themes for the year ahead and uh, now the marketers toolkit is a is a project we do every year and we'll hear a bit more about it in a few moments now what we thought we'd do is introduce this this big new report with uh with a podcast so this is this will be a 3 in 15 podcast uh where we run through three big talking points from the report in 15-ish minutes. We we often bust that, but, uh, you know, we're, that's that's the goal. Um, and then next week, we'll have three interviews with CMOs, uh, and we're really going to be exploring what's on their mind as we head into the new year. But first, let's look at the Marketers Toolkit 2024. And to help us, we have Adi Kishore, who uh, really led this project in his walks insight director um Addy, welcome to the podcast uh and let's just start with what what the marketers toolkit is you know what what is this big report we do every year why why do we do it thanks david delighted to be here um the marketers toolkit is an annual sort of product that walk pulls out it's a it's an important sort of moment for us because uh it's uh, a point at the end of the year where we really sit down and we think about kind of what are the key issues that marketers should be thinking about in the coming year. And of course, there are a number of topics that are sort of always on that marketers are constantly working on. But our goal with this report is to really identify a handful of um, of key issues that are being are sort of disruptive. So things that are coming around the corner, something that is new and disruptive for marketers or potentially something that's been sort of bubbling bubbling along, uh, but then has reached an inflection point where it really sort of becomes quite big and influential in the market. And so our goal is to sort of identify really the top five themes, five of these key trends that we think will disrupt markets, uh, pose potentially challenges for marketers, but then also op- offer opportunities for growth. Now, this is, this is not just us sort of sitting in a in a room sort of pulling things uh you know out of the depths of our brain is it is there's quite a big process that goes behind it including a big survey of the industry a lot of sort of cmo interviews tell us a little bit about how we've pulled that together uh absolutely so it's it's a lengthy process we start in june uh where we use a methodology called geist which is a framework we've developed uh within walk 
And we use that to identify some of the big macro level shifts that we anticipate uh, in industry. And so that's looking at, you know, a variety of sources from the IMF to central banks to political commentary, think tanks, social research. We pull all of those together and then we go through a series of and sort just of- to be, just to be clear, before we get into that, that Geist stands for Government, Economy, Industry, Society, Technology, Environment. I've got that right, yeah, Geist. And, and that's looking at different influences on, on, on the sort of macro environment. That's, that's what we're talking about. Exactly. So we look at macro drivers through six lenses. Um, as you said, there's government, economy, industry, society, technology, and environment. And those are the six lenses that we use to evaluate some of the, the, the macro shifts that we, that we see coming. And they're based on you know, a variety of sources and, and, and real data. And then we backtrack from that, or we filter from that to look at the implications on marketers and how marketers will be affected by these, by these trends and what that means for them. Great. So... That's the background. That's the setup. What do we actually identify this year? What are the what are the things that people are going to see when they read the report? Uh, the first thing we're looking at is polarization, and as I said, that's that's really looking at how political ideologies and social divides are growing deeper. Um, one of the things that we we you know that, that that we know we've seen and from a number of brands, but that was really sort of brought home by uh, the controversy around Bud Light is the fact that even small steps can get brands into trouble. Um, and of course, you know, I think most people in marketing heard about uh, the Bud Light controversy where a set of a six pack of beer was sent to a trans influencer and provoked, you know, a really, really sort of aggressive backlash from, uh, from the conservative or the right. Um, and I, I think, you know, somewhat arguably, there's a slight, there's been a slight drift for brands towards the more sort of liberal left um, in recent times, it's been uh, comparatively. Uh, it's it's been it's, you know th there hasn't been much of a cost to brands in the past because those are they've sort of perceived those as generally supported uh, ideas. But I think the conservatives or the right is sort of striking back now, uh, and the Bud Light controversy, as well as things around a number of brands around the world, where you're starting to see boycotts and strong sort of reactions in social media. Uh, you know, really start to sort of push the uh, push the sort of conversation in a different direction, and so brands have to be a lot more careful now moving forward uh, in terms of where they go into sort of the social side of things. What did the brands in our survey say about this? Because this is this feels like a sort of you know a, a potentially quite a big big issue for next year. So so what were the brands in our survey sort of talking about? Well, it's interesting. I mean, one of the questions we asked brands was, um, you know, do you think you can avoid con controversy? Um, and we had an absolutely even split there. 40% agreed and 40% disagreed. So you're going to see, I think, depending on the brand, the nature of the brand and the positioning, as well as the individual markets, uh, a sense that, you know, some, some brands, I think, feel that if they, if they avoid purpose, if they stay clear of any kind of complicated social issues, uh, they're going to be able to avoid controversies. But an equal number actually think that no matter what you do, you're going to get stuck at some point with, with some kind of social challenge. Um, and then once you do, <laughs> we, uh, we found again a sort of fairly even split. 
So 38% said that they should stay the course. Once you've taken a position, you got to stick to it. Um, and then just a little under that, so 33% said that you should immediately apologize and try and calm the situation. So not a huge difference there. The interesting bit was the sort of 13% who frankly said, we have no idea, we need help. Mm. Um, I think the only sort of consensus that we see in the data is uh, how to approach this. And 76% of brands, so, so three out of every four um, sort of survey respondents, sorry, um, said that you should pick a position, so think it through, figure out where you stand, and then stick to it. Yeah, and I think I think what this this sort of brings us back to is that whatever whether you want to call it purpose or 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 another sort of name, um, it has to be a sort of organizational commitment. It can't be like the marketing de uh, department landing on a purpose and going, oh, that's that that's our company's purpose. It has to come from the CEO, from the the whole organization, because then you have the permission to sort of stick stay the course. I, I think it's uh, you know I think what what this does is just force organizations to see purpose as a strategic choice and not a sort of tactical play. Very much so. And I think in, in terms of sort of the advice that we would sort of offer is that it, it is going to be a bit of a minefield out there. So you need to go in prepared and preparation means almost taking a sort of a, almost like a political party, you know, understand the political leanings of your customer base. We, we do a lot of segmentation as marketers, but we don't necessarily know where our customers lean politically. And so get an understanding of that. And then as you say, you know, develop that strategy, build that strategy uh, with the knowledge, with the understanding and with forethought and some scenario planning. And then once you've got it, absolutely stick to it. Whatever that position is, do absolutely nothing outside of that. Because as we've seen with Bud Light, even a small, you know, the smallest of, of, uh, of activations can, can you know, have a huge backlash. Okay, so there's a lot of nuance here, obviously, because not like this isn't always a simple left-right split. It's going to depend on the the sort of market you're operating in. It's going to depend on, you know, how sort of homogenous your audiences are. I mean, it's there's an awful lot to consider here. But I guess I guess what to be clear, what we're not saying is that um, this is the end of purpose, and brands just need to sort of uh, stick stick to stick to like you know uh brand and product communications and, and not have thoughts about their role in society we're not saying that it's just maybe a sort of change changing emphasis or change in the sort of way you approach it i think that's exactly right david and a really important point i think awareness and preparation are kind of the key Okay, so let's get into the second topic we're going to look at uh, in the report. And, and this is a big one. We're going to talk about generative AI, aren't we? So uh, tell us a little bit about our approach to generative AI in the report. It's interesting because, I mean, the reality is, you know, we don't know a lot about what AI will and, and you know, what it will do and where it could kind of take us. Uh, the one sort of shift that I think we are seeing very clearly is with the launch of ChatGPT and, uh, uh, and, and you know, platforms like Midjourney, we're seeing the shift from, from um, you know, more sort of processing intensive to actually generating content and guiding content. Uh, and that, you know, ha could have implications across the board. It could, it could change 
certain staffing and talent requirements. It could have an impact on on um, the agency revenue model potentially. Some of the things we're looking at, I mean, in some cases, you know, you're actually looking at generating fresh uh, copy in particular. Uh, but one of the big sort of advantages that everybody agrees on is the concept of creative versioning. So being able to adapt very quickly marketing assets to suit different audiences in different regions. Um, it's also the ability to process and develop an idea very quickly from sort of concept to execution. There's, you know, savings in terms of efficiencies in production costs and processes. Um, and then, you know, from a planning standpoint, there's there's the rise of sort of synthetic data, which offers the potential to uh, to better understand a brand's strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, using using sort of invented consumers. <laughs> in, 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 exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so I think there's that sort of internal process and and you know how we how we actually get to creative ideas, creative communications. Um, but there's there's a sort of bigger element to this as well, isn't there? Which is the the context that uh, advertising or communications is going to be running in next year, and this this brings us into the world of things like deep fakes, made for advertising sites, and 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 the sort of quality of the open web. What well, what are we seeing in in this sort of space? I mean, I think, you know, I think the, the, the sort of concerns around it are pretty significant. So we've talked about, you know, I talked about some of the benefits that AI could offer, um, could offer advertisers, but there are some pretty significant dangers. I mean, part of it is that the tools themselves are not intuitive, uh, certainly not as intuitive as we would like. Uh, and then, of course, as you mentioned, there are significant concerns around things like deep fakes and MFA sites. Um, I don't, you know, some of you may, some of, especially those based in the UK may have heard of this deep fake video from Martin Lewis. He's a, he's a sort of money expert and he advises consumers on how to save money. And, you know, he's, he's quite well known, especially during the sort of cost of living crisis. And there was a video of him advocating an investment uh, in an Elon Musk run uh, investment vehicle of some sort. Uh, and neither Elon Musk nor Martin Lewis were involved in it. But, you know, this this deep fake video circulated quite widely. Now, that's the kind of thing that's actually quite alarming for, for advertisers. And in fact, a survey by Rival Spark earlier this year found that advertisers were much more concerned about fake content and, and you know, having that affect their brand than they were about losing jobs, which is, again, another concern in, in the space. So AI has its biases, it has its problems, and if you're going to, you know, and, and there are going to be always bad actors who can sort of willfully use the the platform to create uh, content that is that is dangerous. So from a brand safety perspective, I think it sort of opens up a whole new kind of can of worms, um, you know, particularly when you're looking at, uh, you know, advertising across the open web. I, and I think we can think of this about sort of immediate 2024 concerns uh, and then some some sort of longer term issues. So in 2024, clearly, as we said earlier, we've got a lot of elections in a highly polarized political climate. I mean, that like th the impact of, uh, you know, deep fakes or other forms of, uh, you know, misinformation using generative AI it is quite profound and you know what 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 will that do to you know the quality of the environment on social media platforms for example we, you know that's 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 a big question 
and I think longer term, you mentioned made for advertising sites. Um, that I mean, they clearly exist already. Uh, you don't need generative AI to make them, but um, generative AI could create a lot more of them, which starts to bring into question the quality. Say the quality of the open web, the, uh, the the quality of search results based on the open web, and indeed, you know, well, we still don't know what the impact of generative AI on search itself is going to have. So there's there's a lot there, isn't there? And I, I think it's fair to say we're we're only at the beginning. Yeah, and you know, I, th- I think I think 2024 is going to be a really sort of watershed year in some ways, and which is why I think we've highlighted this theme in particular. So, finally, before we leave this topic, are there any examples from the reports or case studies that that show some of the positives, some of the some of the opportunities here? Um, I mean, I think there's there's uh, you know a lot of a lot of opportunities around AI, you know, from from sort of rethinking what we can do as an as an agency or as an industry and one of the um, one of the uh, case studies that we showcased in the report uh, was around uh, a campaign that Cadbury's India ran uh, which is really interesting so they used uh, a major sort of superstar an Indian Bollywood superstar called Shahrukh Khan um, and who you know usually charges you know millions to endorse a brand and they shot a video with him, but then they used uh, AI to be able to adapt what he was saying. And so Cadbury's worked with a lot of the small sort of mom and pop kind of stores where they sell. And those stores could encourage people to come to them and shop with them using Shahrukh Khan. So there was a way in which they could go in and get him to mention their emporium or their sweet shop or whatever it was. And, you know, it's an extraordinary sort of capability for a small shop that with almost no, you know, advertising budget uh, to be able to have this superstar, um, you know, on video kind of mention their shop. Okay, let's look at uh, a, a third and, and final theme for this this podcast. Um, what do you what do you want to focus on for this? Well, one one issue that really seemed interesting to me when we when we did the research was this concept of sort of masculinity being in crisis, um, and it sounds very dramatic on the face of it, but when you start to look at the numbers, they're actually quite quite stark. Suicide is the leading cause of death for men under forty five in the UK, and in the US, men are five times more likely to kill themselves than women. Women are now outnumbering men, almost two to one in university admissions in the US and around the world, in, in, from countries from Sweden to South Korea, girls are outperforming boys academically in schools in, 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 in similar sort of, you know, two thirds, one third kind of proportions. So there's, there's something really significant going on uh, with young men. And we thought that was an important theme to explore in, in our report. Yeah, and this is this has been building a bit of a head of steam behind this. It's something Scott Galloway talks a lot about, uh, and also we've seen one of writers from the UK, Caitlin Moran, uh, talking about this uh, as well. It does feel like it's a bit of a a moment around masculinity, doesn't it? Yeah, very much so. And I think uh, you know Richard Reeves's book of uh, of boys and men has probably been kind of pretty important in in that, in that it's created quite a lot of press and publicity around these issues. He's gathered data from around the world and really made a compelling sort of case for the challenges that that young men are facing. 
Um, and it's it's particularly those from sort of historically marginalized backgrounds who, you know, typically uh, would have or a generation ago may have gone towards sort of more manufacturing jobs, but those have kind of shifted to other countries. Uh, and and you've you've got this entire sort of generation of youths that is raised with imagery from media, from advertising of this sort of successful male stereotype. Men who are on one hand very macho, very tough, very aggressive. Uh, on another, very successful, living flashy lives because that's what men do. Um, you know, luxurious cars and, and big houses. Uh, and they're sort of looking at the disconnect between that and the realistic, you know, options that they have and the potential they have. And they're really, really struggling uh, with their sort of, with their identity, with a contemporary identity. Now, the danger there is that they are increasingly being drawn uh, drawn to sort of toxic role models online. And there's, there's sort of a variety of them, but I think probably the most extreme is kind of Andrew Tate, who uh, has, a, you know, was sort of surprisingly popular with, with young teenage boys. Okay, so what does the data from our, from our survey start to tell us about this? So yeah, it's interesting. Some of the data that we've got from our survey, you know, shows a pretty broad consensus, a sort of agreement that the definition of masculinity has changed. So nearly 80% uh, of of marketers' surveys felt that masculinity had changed. 63% or just short of two-thirds agreed that they themselves needed to change their depictions of men um, in 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 their sort of advertising. So there is there is a clear uh, kind of awareness within uh, the marketing industry, I think that um you know that that things need to shift or things need to change and yet we're not really seeing that so uh the unstereotype metric which is a which is analysis that is conducted by the unstereotype alliance and cantar every year they found uh that 9% of ads that they reviewed showed men in non-traditional roles so just 9% and only 7% showed women in non-traditional roles around the world. So there's quite quite a long way to go in terms of being able to sort of make those adjustments. And we as an industry certainly have to take responsibility for uh, the imagery and the depictions and the stereotypes of men that, that have been created over the last few decades. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is a sort of, uh, you know, this isn't to take the sort of spotlight away from uh, the need to do more around portrayals of uh, uh, of women and femininity within ads, but it, it's it's also saying we also need to think about uh, the way we portray men and masculinity at the same time. Precisely. I mean, I think there's certainly a lot of work to be done in terms of you know on on, on in certain areas in terms of driving sort of gender equality. Uh, but I think what we're seeing is that you've got a young generation of men who don't have uh, any kind of social sort of guidance or anyone to turn to in terms of how to deal with some of these issues. Uh, whereas I think on the female side, some of, the, some of those institutions and support systems are starting to develop. But we're almost seeing the same set of challenges. I mean, obviously different because you're dealing with a different gender and different set of problems. But you're seeing some consistencies and some similarities uh, particularly in the way stereotyping uh, has, has sort of depicted women, you're now starting to see uh, similar criticism uh, on the side of men. Let's talk to me a little bit about uh, the examples we use in the reports. I think we use an example from Gillette, don't we? Now, if go back a few years and Gillette came under quite a lot of uh, criticism for a for a particular ad that it that it uh, that talks about toxic masculinity in the US. Um, but we, 
you know, it's it's an issue they've they've come back to and talk to us about the case study that we use in the in the report. The the ad that you're talking about, the best a man can be, ran a few years ago, and it was sort of this trying to get men not to be bullies. So it was a sort of, you know, you, you can't just say boys will be boys and they'll bully uh, other kids and they'll bully each other or, bully, you know, bully women. All of that should stop and men should step in and 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 be the best a man can be. That was sort of the the, the spin on it. And it, it was, uh, it got a really explosive, sort of quite a strong backlash when it, when it was rolled out. Um, you know, journalists and newscasters kind of trashed it, or at least a couple of prominent ones, Pierce Morgan in particular. Uh, and, you know, the, the ad when it was posted on YouTube got way more sort of dislikes and negative comments than it got positive ones. But there is a degree of sort of separating the signal from the noise on this one, because the ad was also, also got a lot of positive feedback. Uh, social researchers talked about what Gillette was trying to do with that ad and, and spoke highly about it. Um, we've seen um, the daughter of Martin Luther King came out in favor of it. Uh, and th- there was quite a lot of positive sort of uh, response as well. So I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. I think they, they probably, uh, you know, some of it was the timing, some of it was probably the creative itself, some of the nuances in the way that they sort of went ahead with it. And I think one learning probably was that it was perhaps too, too sort of front and center critical of men or masculinity. And there was a sort of gentler way of, of doing that. So more sort of positive reinforcement rather than uh, than finding fault. Uh, and they've done a much better job, I think, with a, 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 an ad campaign that we featured in the report as a case study. Uh, and this is a series of ads that they've done in India. So this is Gillette India, um, including, you know, just, just challenging sort of male stereotypes. And so they've got an ad with a little boy who goes with his father to get uh, get shave, get a shave. And, uh, you know, that's a very traditional Indian um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, activity where you sit down and, and the, the barber kind of gives you a hot shave. Um, and in this case, they go to a barber shop that's run by girls. And this boy is sort of amazed. Can girls be barbers? Um, there's another campaign with, uh, a, a, with a, a gentleman from the army. Uh, and he actually, in an anti-terrorist uh, action, got shot in the face. Uh, and he talks about how he never cried and his father is an army man and, you know, he sort of brought up that men don't cry. And then he's sitting in this hospital room, you know, getting getting surgery and recovering from his wounds and both he and his father sit down and cry. So it just exposes different aspects of masculinity, uh, which I think is very, very important because this idea of sort of being stoic and, uh, you know, the, the sort of the old Marlboro man, you know, who was sort of the stoic loner and and was just incredibly macho. Uh, that's probably what's you know contributing to uh, to this idea that you know men who are suffering from mental health challenges shouldn't ask for help. Thank you, Addy. Well, that's a great summary of some of the themes from Marketers Toolkit 2024. There is, of course, a lot more in the report, including two whole trends we didn't even talk about. If you would like to read that, then uh, do go to walk.com. If you're a subscriber, the full report is there. If you are not a subscriber, then there is a sample report available too. Um, As I said earlier, we're going to keep looking at this theme of planning for 2024. We've got some great interviews with CMOs, coming up next week so keep an eye uh, out for that on the walk podcast don't forget to subscribe to the walk podcast on your podcasting platform of choice and if you really like what you hear then please do leave us a review until next time 
Thanks for listening. Thank you.